Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh... Ah, welcome to Behind the Bastards, the podcast where I brag about how much better the weather is right now where I am than where Jamie is. It's really Somehow really this fun. podcast really, has really gotten fucked. 500 episodes. It's really fucked After, up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What an incredible uh, what an incredible thing for a friend to do. You know, mm-hmm. actually, I do think that my, my all of my friends regularly do brag about the superiority of their climate, and I don't appreciate it. Well, everyone used to say that brag about how nice it was in Southern California, but then we killed the planet. Yeah, I, I, I missed that uh, era of remember, Southern remember, California. I've only ra- lived in the dystopian remember one. Remember June gloom? Oh, that was the time. What is June gloom? Oh, oh, that's when you would get like a little bit, like a week or two of cool weather in June. It would be like, no, it'd be I've like almost the that. whole month of June. It would be gray and it would be like in the 60s. It was lovely. It was like my entire oh. life until... You know, the planet died. A couple of years ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I when Thank I moved you. to L.A., it was in, like, June, and I had I left Texas where it was, like, hot. I drove through Phoenix where it was unlivable for human oh beings. Oh, my God, um, Phoenix. And then I get to Los Angeles, and in Culver City, it was, like, the first three weeks I was there was, like, 68 at the height of every day and, like, partly cloudy, which is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we killed the planet. Um, and you know specifically who killed the planet? Jamie Loftus. Oh, are we gonna? We're gonna. We're gonna pit this on yes. H. Blatt's full stop. Helena Blavatsky is responsible yeah. for the oil and oh, gas industry. Is, yeah, that, Hellblatt. That's my new yeah. suggestion. Hellblatt. Yeah, she's not, but she is responsible for World War II. Um, and that's today's story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
1878, she leaves New York for bomb, eventually Bombay, India, right? They stop in England along the way. They set up some some theosophical offices. Everyone's going to yell that at me about the, how I say yeah, theosophy. Yeah, like migrates no from the U.S. to the U.K. But she's yeah. the only one that continues east from there. So I'm interested in what happens. Yeah, so she winds up in Bombay, um, and she eventually moves on from, from there a little bit. But yeah, Blavatsky and Olcott um, bring – basically like kind of frame it as like we are returning – like traditional Hindu and Buddhist beliefs to India by like setting up the Theosophical Society here. Um, okay. So eventually, she yeah, they land in, in Bombay and and they partner with an organization, uh, an organization called the Arya Samaj movement, which had been founded a few years earlier by a, a guy named Swami uh, Saraswati, who was a, a Hindu holy man who was really angry about the Christianization of his country because the British bring in missionaries, right, who are trying to like recruit people to be Christian. So there is a lot sure. of, there's actually a lot of folks in India who like what Blavatsky's saying and doing, even though like, because one of the things I think that is worth understanding about Hinduism is that it is not, it is not a religion with the kind of strict doctrine that you get in a lot of like Christian religions where it's like, no, this is mm -hmm. like, I, I having spent a lot of time in India, one of the fun experiences you have there is when you like are eating with with Indian folks and like just asking them about like Rama and Sita and all these like different um, um, gods and goddesses and, and mythical stories and stuff, every time you at like if different groups of people are telling you the same story, it's a little bit different every time, right? Because there's all these mm -hmm. different like variations, and that's one of the things that's like so neat about um, talking to people in that part of the world about religion. And so there's mm -hmm. not. There's not as much of a, you would expect maybe kind of a backlash, but instead it's more people happy that like, oh, these Westerners actually like our religion and like, yeah, they, they're interpreting it in weird ways and I hadn't heard that or that, but like, but even in at the, the abstract end of the day, that there is like yeah. some interest. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're coming here to engage with our religion rather than to convert us to theirs, which is like, people like that, right? Like, of course they like sure. that. You know, it's not, sure. it's a perfectly understandable thing. Um, sure. And this guy, Saraswati, he wants to push his people back to their like, traditional spiritual beliefs and not the shit the British were peddling. And Blavatsky and Olcott, they're basically trying to de-Christianize the West and bring the Vedas there. So yeah, this is actually pretty popular. <laughs> like it, mm -hmm. not that like a lot of Indians don't become theosophists, but like there's a, there's people like in the country who are like, oh, this is a nice trend to see. Um, so the society does grow around the world. There's something like 130 offices around the world by the time she dies. Um, like it spreads in, in a manner that's not why, again, there's a lot of similarities between theosophy and Scientology, not in terms of the belief system, because number one, much less of a toxic thing. Like, and she is a, a less toxic person than L. Ron Hubbard. I will give her credit for right. that all, I like, mean, all day but, long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's Amazing not a high yardstick. bar. <laughs> yeah, um, an incredible yardstick. But the the, the the theosophical theosophy in general is not like it is not like Scientology. It is not based entirely around abuse and like secrets and violence. Um, but it does the way that it spreads. It there's a lot of similarities between how science because because Hubbard is looking at Blavatsky and her example when he's setting up his secret society religion thing. It is kind of wild um, to see that like ripple effect of like Blavatsky is essentially asking like, can I do spiritualism but worse? And then L. Ron Hubbard's like, can I do th theosophy amongst other things, but worse? And then yeah. you can just spiral out from there. Yeah. 
Um, so that's cool. Uh, Blavatsky that's and cool. Olcott uh, launch a journal, The Theosophist, and she continues to orchestrate control over the movement by having her masters send letters to Olcott and others. Particularly, there will be like high-ranking Indian, like in terms of like their their position in society, like Indian folks, people with money, and like high-ranking British colonial administrators who will like come by and like be interested in what she's talking about, and she'll have her masters reach out to them. Um, huh. Sometimes when she's feeling lazy and in an argument with someone, she'll just claim that they've contacted her telepathically directly to like end an argument like, ah, no, Kudhumi just like DM'd me, man. And like, you're wrong. You got to stop saying this Girl, shit. Girl, boss. Um, Girl, it's, boss. It's pretty funny. Uh, Stawazinski continues, quote, the masters soon began exchanging correspondence through Blavatsky, of course, with an Englishman living in India named Alfred Percy Sinnott. Sinnott was a writer and editor-in-chief of The Pioneer, an English daily newspaper. Soon after Blavatsky's arrival in India, he became an avid theosophist. In 1882, he published a book consisting of his correspondence with Master Kuthumi. Soon after the book's release, a gentleman named Richard Kittle publicly accused Master Kuthumi of plagiarism. Kittle insisted that the great Mahatma copied large parts of his book, published a few years earlier. In response, Madame Blavatsky released a letter written by the master in which Kuthumi helped to explain the misunderstanding. It was not an act of deliberate plagiarism, wrote Mahatma, but a result of overlapping astral planes. One day, Kuthumi was reading the Chronicle of the Universe, which contains all of the information that ever existed. The master came across Kittle's text there, among billions of others, and failed to identify it. Now, this is the same argument Elon Musk makes when he steals people's memes on Twitter. <laughs> Say, how? So you've been we've been uh, recording this episode for 500 hours, and mm-hmm. you just really wanted to say that, didn't you? I did. It is really funny because <laughs> the Mahatma papers. We'll talk a little more about them later. The Mahatma papers are like a huge moment in Theosophy, where like okay, I'm not they familiar with these. Them. They were, it's, it's basically kind of like the Silmarillion of theosophy. Um, oh boy. <laughs> but it's God, a huge a amount of it is plagiarized by Richard Kittle. Cause she's a play, like all she's doing is taking other people's stuff and rewriting it. And she yeah. gets kind of lazy. And then when she gets called on it is like, oh, this is Kuthumi's fault. He fucked up. Cause he was just like all of the books that have ever existed or will ever exist are like stored on the astral plane. And he was just like reading it and like failed to, he didn't see like the name on the side when he was like sending it to me. Um, mm. it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. That's fucking wild. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah. He did. He did. He did the occult equivalent of like copy pasting a Wikipedia page to like sit, turn an essay in, <laughs> like the great Kudumi. <laughs> and uh, and got away. Well, like I mean, I guess was accused of plagiarism. No, does yeah, that go he does. anywhere? Like, yes, it does. We will talk he about does that get busted. in a bit. Okay, okay. But initially, the, the rapid growth of the faith and the constant flood of attention, yeah, it, like this is these are like the big cracks that start to form, right? So as as okay. quickly as things go well for them, shit starts to go badly because she is. I think she's fundamentally kind of lazy, right? Like this is a lazy fuck up. I mean, it yeah. does sound like it's it's funny. I I do feel like uh, this is like a very interesting personality type that. Ex- has existed in, in various forms, but like someone who has endless energy to self-promote, but no energy for original thought, well, which is like wild. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because we have talked about all of the tricks that she does. We're not going to get into now. We're going to talk about how she did them. And it's also okay. really lazy. Um, like we were, it, it, it's, it's, it's much, much like less effortful than you well, might and have that's, guessed initially. And, and that's what, like, part of what I find fascinating, like, whatever, like, 
societal shit aside about the like physical mediums is like the amount of effort people would like the Katie King thing, like for, oh, yeah. for the, it took a lot of work. It was a lot of work yeah, to make shit like hours. that happen. Yeah. But it doesn't sound, but she was not putting in hours. No. Um, other okay. people are though. So, Oh, okay. Back, She's outsourcing. Yeah. So in India, her, her two most, again, she's like basically in order to trick people with these, you know, they're dropping the letter. They're doing all these other tricks. She has yeah. followers who are helping her carry them out. And in India, the two people okay. who are doing this the most are a couple who we've talked about briefly, Emma and Alex Colum, like C-O-U-L-O-M-B. Um, they're married. Like uh, the and coffee. Yeah, like the coffee. Um, she had met them back in Cairo in 1871. If you remember, she had that like failed spiritual society back then. So she gets mm -hmm. to know them then, and they kind of stay in contact for years. And by the time she moves to India and sets up shop, they'd gotten themselves stranded in Sri Lanka. Um, and Blavatsky paid them to like paid to bring them to Bombay, and she gives them jobs in the society. Um, and at first, they're like kind of her indentured servants to like work off this debt. They're cooking and they're cleaning. Um, and because they owe her and like don't really have many other options, she starts enlisting them to help her carry out tricks on people um, to raise more money mm. for the society. A contemporary so source, literally yeah. like carnival tactics. <laughs> oh yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah. A contemporary source who like eventually gets this information because like the Colombs break from her. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, Reverend George Patterson writes, quote, readers of the occult world, which was a popular magazine at the time, are familiar with phenomena in which Madame Blavatsky's cigarettes and cigarette papers play an important part. In the presence of the inquiring company, a cigarette or a cigarette paper is peculiarly marked or torn across so as to be recognizable again. It is then dispatched by the agency of occult forces to some distant place, and the inquirers are told where they will find it. Telegraphic communication the verification of the exploit easy. So she will like be sitting in a room full of people. And she'll be like, hey, I'm going to prove to you this shit's real. I'm going to telepathically send this cigarette to England, right? Mm -hmm. So she'll mark it or something. And then she'll uh, she'll like disappear it, a uh, little sleight of hand thing. And then she'll yeah. telegraph like whoever it is in England who was like in on the, the the mark with her and be like, hey, did you, what did you like look behind the, the look look behind the bust of this philosopher in your library? And they'll be like, oh, I found a cigarette that's ripped in this way. And everyone will be mm -hmm. like, oh my God, she teleported the cigarette, you know? Um, okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that that is not an effortless, you know, that's. That's not effortless, but it's also, she is not the primary source of effort on that, right? Other, right, there's no, a lot, she's delicate. Yeah, Delegating. Yeah. That is interesting though. That's I mean, yeah. there's a lot of shit that it's you hear very like modern, that, but that's right? yeah. She's yeah. she's she's yeah. making like all of the really successful occult gurus, she's making the most of like cutting edge technology at the time. Mm -hmm. Um now, thanks to letters later revealed between Blavatsky and the Colombs, we know exactly how this trick was achieved. In one letter, she complains that a half cigarette that had been left behind to be found by a theosophist named Captain Maitland in India had been like cleaned up by a servant or something. And so when he was telegrammed to like when they telegrammed to tell him like where to find it, it wasn't there because one of his servants had cleaned it up. Um, yeah. And Blavatsky was enraged. She wrote back to the Colombs, quote, I am sorry for it, for Captain Maitland is a theosophist and spent money over it. They want to tear the cigarette paper in two and keep one half, and I will choose the same pieces with the exception of the prince's statue, for our enemies might watch and see the cigarette fall and destroy it. I enclose an envelope with a cigarette paper in it. I will drop another half of a cigarette behind the queen's head, where I dropped my hair the same day or Saturday. And yes, mm. she would also drop bits of her hair behind like things and be like, look, the hair was like it was teleported by by me or my masters to like show those favor like, to you so you can give us money. Yeah, the, yeah. Those little physical confirmations that you're mm. a 
powerful spiritual being is always yes. kind of like a freaky thing. Yeah. This is unrelated, but every time, do you ever think about how Rasputin filled his walls with hair? What? No, I didn't know that. It's something I don't actually, I mean, it may not be true. It's a fact that I learned in high school in a class that I took that was that like a house that Rasputin had lived in at some point at like the height of his power after he had died, they were like demolishing the house and the walls were full of human hair. <sighs> you mean Rasputin, rah-rah Rasputin, lover of the Russian king? Yeah, lover of the that, Russian That one, king. yeah, okay. Wow, that's a... Who really was gone. Who really liked filling his walls with hair. I have not heard that. I hope it's true, though. I hope it's true, too. Because I do the same thing. Well, it's like, yeah, anytime I hear, uh, you know, anytime I hear about a hair-related occult thing, I'm like, oh, like the Rasputin's hair walls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whomst among us doesn't stuff human hair into our walls as a hobby? Well, me for one, but Keeps me young. Keeps me young. So, yeah, exactly. It's like jogging. So another one of her cons was to have a letter materialize in the air above a mark and fly. Again, it'll be like set up in like a ceiling fan or something. So it like falls from the sky. Um, And of course, these would be, we've talked about this a lot, filled with instructions from Kut Humi or Master Moria. In another letter she wrote to the Colombs, ahead of a visit with two wealthy theosophists, she told them, quote, My dear friends, in the name of heaven, do not think that I have forgotten you. I have not even time to breathe. That is all. We are in the greatest crisis, and I must not lose my head. I cannot and dare not write anything to you, but you must understand that it is absolutely necessary that something should happen in Bombay while I am here. Uh, These two, the two, well, like rich marks, must see one of the brothers and receive a visit from him, the brothers being her master and Kudhumi. And if possible, the first must receive a letter, which I shall send. But to see them, the brothers, is still more necessary. The letter must fall on his head like the first, and I am begging Mm -hmm. Kudhumi to send it to him. We must strike while the iron is hot, act independently of me, but in the habits and customs of the brothers. If something should happen in Bombay that would make all the world talk, it would be grand. But what? The brothers are inexorable. Oh, dear Mr. Cologne, save the situation and do what they ask you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty, like, clear what she's doing, right? Like, yeah, uh, no, I mean, that's, and, yeah. and it is, I mean, it, it does sound, like, pretty durational, too, I think, is, yeah. like, part of what makes it impressive. It's, like, the same people are coming back and back and back, and, yeah. you know, you've, they have yeah, to, to keep them interested, way. to keep the money going. You got to every, you got to keep giving them these bits of personal connection with Master Moria and Kudhumi. That's what they want. That's what they're paying for. Yeah. And also, I I feel like it's what, because like shit like this was like formed in like, or at least with spiritualism formed in like out of a distaste for like the amount of like shame and rejection that comes with Christian religion. So that so much of this kind of shit is built around like confirmation and affirming things you already believe. Yes. Yes. But that, but that creates this whole pressure of like, because I am claiming my religion is backed by science, I have to have things go and go and go in increasingly big and impressive ways in a way that is just like, completely unsustainable so that's uh that's that's fascinating to hear that she's using such elaborate tactics to kind of keep that up it is also funny the first like line two lines of that sound just like a democratic party fundraising letter (laughs) we are in the greatest crisis i haven't had time to breathe i must not lose my head um nancy pelosi i'm shitting myself please (laughs) open email (laughs) (laughs) 
So other letters she sent during her travels in India make it clear exactly how these summonings were handled logistically. Everyone here is madly anxious to see something. I shall write you from Amritsar or Lahore. My hair will do well in the old tower of Sion, but you should put it in an envelope, a sachet of some peculiar kind, and hang it while you, where well. you hide it. Or even in Bombay, select a good spot and write to me at Amritsar, and then after the first month to Lahore. So she's like saying, ahead of me, go set up tricks and tell me where they are so I can like go into some guy's house and be like, you check behind the bureau. There's a thing for you from, ah, it's a lock of my own hair, you know? Right. I teleported she's, it to you. That's like, I mean, I guess she's kind of doing her own thing at this point. This she's definitely like stuff doing that her I've, own thing, yeah. Yeah, like the, the hair stuff, uh, <laughs> this is not, like, uh, this is her hair legitimate stuff from innovation. across an ocean yeah. is yeah. not shit I've encountered before. But she's yeah. doing, I mean, this is closer to just, like, elaborate magic tricks. Like Yes, this is, she is doing elaborate is, magic yeah. tricks, yes. Well, and again, she is an occultist. She's not a spiritualist, yeah. right? Like, the spiritualists right. didn't really do stuff like this. Um, so one of Blavatsky's favorite tricks involved a shrine to Kuthumi in the Theosophical Society's headquarters. It had locking doors and it was like against a wall. So on a wet, regular basis, they'd open the shrine. People could like pray to the master, burn incense, give him their requests in the form of letters, um, which would be like teleported to him in Tibet. But the shrine had a secret back door built into it so that when it was locked, a society member could like add things to the case. So periodically when there were guests, they would like have tea and someone would break a saucer or a teacup or even a kettle, right? And then they would take the Ooh. pieces as a demonstration of Humi's power. They'd put them in the, um, the, the shrine and they'd lock it. And when they'd open it, a brand new would one would be, be sitting. Yeah. yeah, it would be repaired okay. magically, right? Yeah. Ooh. Sent from Tibet. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, that's a good use yeah. of both. That's a, yeah. <laughs> that's like what I love about um, it was some so of this stuff. Easy like, back what then. a good use of someone's energy and time yeah. to fix a plate to make a to make a point. Yeah. Again, they're never using these magical powers to like stop genocide in the Congo that's going on in no, this it, period or like yeah, solve any of these mass like any problems. It's just like I fixed you a have saucer. a chipped teacup. Yeah. Uh, look. Kudumi's got that shit. Yeah, could yeah. Can, the can civil war in. going on in China that's killing tens of millions of people. Kudhumi does not have that shit, but like Kudhumi's got this saucer. He's gonna fix the Kudhumi's, fuck out of that but, stuff. But one fictional yeah, character. That's right. Solve that sort of systemic issue. So, in one of her letters to the Colombs planning this con, the saucer con, Blavatsky made it clear what she thought I, about I've the been people to saucer that con, she was con, and I cosplay there. Con, uh, that I mean, Jamie. On an yeah. on a somewhat related note, we should we should do something in Roswell at some point. But <gasps> um, oh, there's that, a podcast there. There's just going to be a day where you mm-hmm. can text me, uh, meet me at Roswell, and then I'll be like, "All right, it's the day," and everything mm-hmm. is canceled, and I'm yeah. getting on a bus. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Sophie, turn off the podcasts. Jamie and I got to go to Roswell. <laughs> can I come? Um, Yes. Yes, okay, of cool. course. I'm down. It's okay. a group text. Yay. All right. We'll make we'll make this happen. Um okay. yeah, so in one of her letters to the Colombs, Blavatsky made it clear what she thought about these people who again thought these are supposed to be her followers that she's inducting into the mysteries. She mm-hmm. wrote Try if you think that it is go- try if you think that it is going to be a success to have a larger audience than our domestic imbeciles only. It is well worth the trouble. Oof. She's literally talking about like this 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 saucer kind. Like if you if you're going to if you think that you can pull this off, try to get more people in there than just like the normal idiots that we have around. Like right. <laughs> I mean that is um, she does have a good way of laser focusing on like how to make things appear more credible. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's so wow wow wow. 
She's like, my followers, uh, let's not talk about their intelligence level. It's low. No. Now, obviously, it w- this was a boring time, right? Like, there's not much going on in the world. That's a big part of why spiritualism is a success and occultism is a success. People don't have a whole lot to fill their days. They hadn't invented Twitter yet, unfortunately, tragically. That's, um, I mean, they're, they're, hmm, I yeah. politely disagree, <laughs> but that's fine. People, it's easier to impress people with shit, but even so... It all gets old after a while, right? You can only do yes. these cons People so many times. On. You're like, oh, another lock of your hair in my house. Hooray. So yeah. <laughs> they've got to like, they've. she's got to try new things on a pretty regular basis. Um, and the sheer volume of letters that her master sent out eventually made some folks ask, can I like, can I like see Coot Humi? Can he like come over? Can I like see Master Moria? The physical like, manifestation. This is what like, always, always like, happens. Yeah. We, we're, we are in Bombay. Tibet's not that far compared to how far Tibet normally is from our asses, right? Like, can we right. not? And they can, they can teleport. Like, they're supposedly teleporting around and handing letters to people. Can I not? Okay. Like, I've given you so much money. Can I like see these guys? Yeah. Um, pretty normal request. And we're going to talk about how... Helena Blavatsky fulfilled that request. But first, Jamie, you know what fulfills you and me and Sophie and everyone else? Products and services? Only the products and services that advertise on this podcast. Everything else leaves us feeling as if our mouths are filled with ashes. But (laughs) these products and services fill the Mm -hmm. yearning void at the center of our souls that that has been wrenched open by the oh. pry bar of capitalism and 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 fills our our broken it, it heals the broken spaces in our souls that's what these products do and if you don't and if you don't like them tweet at, at i write okay on twitter wow wow brave um i don't check twitter anymore i won't i won't i won't see you <laughs> that's why i told brave. them to go to you robert that <laughs> yeah. was that was the mm-hmm. inside joke that mm-hmm. you spoiled <laughs> yeah well spoil these ads The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We're talking about how Blavatsky, um, you know, people start asking, like, can we see these fucking masters that you're that are yeah. always giving this us is, orders and stuff? This is a very um, typical trajectory. But the, yeah. but I think she really fucks herself over by implying that he's not local, but not, not yeah. far away. But not yeah. all that far. Right, right. I mean, Tibet yeah. is, you know, far from Bombay, but not Usually, compared to how will far. Normally, right. yeah. Spiritualists will normally um play it i think much smarter and say that their guides are dead they cannot they cannot come through that is definitely a downside to what she's doing yeah yes um so in order to like trick people emma cologne claims would later claim that blavatsky had her construct a puppet quote later in one of her good moods madame blavatsky called me up and told me see if you can make a head of human size and place it on the divan pointing to a sofa in her room and merely put a sheet round it it would have a magic effect by moonlight what can this mean i wondered but knowing how disagreeable she could make herself if she was stroked on the wrong side i complied with her wish she cut a paper pattern of the face i was to make which i still have on this i cut the precious liniments of the beloved master to, uh, but to my shame i must say that after all my trouble of cutting sewing and stuffing Madame said that it looked like an old Jew. I suppose she meant Shylock, Ooh. which is like a racist caricature of Jewish people. Madame, with a graceful touch here and there of her painting brush, gave it a little better appearance. So they make this fake head to be Master Coot Um Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I see that. Are, my uh, question, are there photographs of this? Because there are a lot of fun pictures from the second wave of spiritualism of 
things like you're describing, like paper mache, like, but if they're backlit and picked pitch dark looks enough like a human silhouette that people would, would really be convinced by them. But then you see a flash photograph taken of them and you're like, oh dear, that is a pile of still wet paper mache. Um, let's see. Can we find, there's definitely like portraits of him that some German guy did, which he looks like Jesus. Um, okay. And again, okay. he's Tibet. He's he's supposed to be like a Tibetan ancient mystic, but also he's like, but kind also of, still looks like. Well, I think he's kind of supposed to be like a member of. I'm not a Kuthumi expert, a Kuthumologist, they call them. But I think he's supposed <laughs> to be like, um, you know, one of these master race type people, and so obviously he looks like a white dude. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I have not found this head uh but yeah next she uh uh emma explains like the purpose the doll played in their uh their little con quote the doll Mm. plays the greatest part in these apparitions and as i have already explained it is carried on somebody's head but at times it is placed on the top of a long bamboo and raised to show that it is an astral body but when the doll has not been at hand even a white cloth wrapped round the person who was to perform the mahatma was at times used and answered the purpose and they would do this to like have him deposit letters and like he'd like kind of wave basically at people. Like get you give you a second of like seeing Kuthumi before he disappears. So it doesn't have to be much, right? You do it at night, you do it from a distance, you know, he drops off a thing and he goes, and then someone's like, No, I saw Kuthumi. He like graced us with his his presence. He's real. Um now, obviously, the fact that I'm reading all of this to you, Jamie, um, yeah. I'm not inducted into the the mysteries of theosophy. Um No. It means that it got out, which means that the Colombs decided to tell everybody, which gets us to one of the more infamous That's, moments in Theosophist oh, history. Yeah. Oh, I'm very so. Wait, sorry. What year are we in right now? This is like 1878, 1880, somewhere like okay. know, around that period. Um, okay. Fascinating. Yeah, I've got okay. a date in there a little later. Um, right. But yeah, this is so. This this moment in Theosophist history is called the Colomb affair. The gist of it is that Ooh. eventually the Colombs had a falling out with Blavatsky. Um, uh-huh. They threatened to blackmail her, and she had them kicked out of the religion and their positions. And in the drama that followed, they took all these letters that she'd been they'd been sending back and forth that out laid out all of the cons they were pulling, um, yeah. and they gave them to some lo- local Christians who had beef with Theosophy. So Theosophists uh, will always be like, "Well, they were con people with too. The Christians. You can't trust the Colomes, and like these these Christians had like a reason to want to damage the church." But it's like. It also, it all adds up, and they had a lot of letters that were definitely from Blavatsky, and other right. people talk about variations of these cons. Like, it's just, it's very clear what happened, right? Sure. Um, oh, man. That is that is always, um, that's one of my, that's a f- always a fun source of dramatic tension when the uh, when the assistant goes rogue. Yes, yes. And, and, and that, I mean, it happens because she's mean like she's shitty to work that's with that's the thing she's, that's and that's yeah. always why it happens it's like because either you're not yeah. being compensated or treated well so mm-hmm. uh, and when i'm the cult leader i i promise when we're living on a cult compound fighting the fda i'm never mm-hmm. gonna be rude to my followers i may ask you to die for me in a holy war against the food and drug administration but in a nice way politely but in a, oh, but in a, like a friendly kind of way. Yeah, like in that documentary, Wild Wild Country. Those people seem nice. I don't think They're... they did anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's been a couple years. Um, I've only seen I've I've mm-hmm. seen about five hundred cult documentaries since mm-hmm. then. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll agree with your characterization yeah, of that. Fine. Why not? They seemed fine. Yeah, yeah. Let's just move right past that and oh assume everyone on Reddit will have no issue with what I've just said. Um, That's. <laughs> 
Robert. Always uh, putting us in compromising positions. Look, if okay, let who okay, show of hands. Who has not poisoned a bunch of people in Antelope, Oregon? Come on. Okay. I don't I don't see any hands. I know, no you hands. are the most likely. Not any person. hands in the air. That's right. Okay. We all do it. It's fine. It's like lying to, you know, a, a traffic Where are cop. you going with this? I'm going to Antelope, Oregon to all right. poison a buffet. Well, how about you go- <laughs> Robert, how about you go back to your script? <laughs> Calm down, okay. sir. Okay, 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 okay. I, I just get worked up. Blavatsky gets me excited Relax. about this stuff. Fussy. So, Fussy on a Friday afternoon. Jeez. There's this... All of this info comes out and these Christians start writing a bunch of articles with like publishing the letters and it's a big embarrassment, right? A big deal for the theosophist community, does a lot of damage to them, especially in India. And one of the upsides of this whole weird affair is that a Blavatsky's room at the headquarters is inspected by other theosophists and they find hidden doors and passages uh, built into her room to allow her to like sneak around and leave shit and like do her spirit stuff, right? Um, that's okay, funny. yeah. That's okay. So yeah. that's like, yeah. So the, the room has been specifically like rigged yeah. for this sort of thing. That yes. is always so interesting yeah. to hear about. Yeah, that yeah. rocks. That's, that's pretty fu- cool. That's funny to me. I was interested in like whether... I don't know. I feel like there, there's all these cases of like, even when the big public figure is um, exposed, like with Scientology or with spiritualism at, at different times, that there are so many believers at this point that no one even cares. And they're yeah. like, there's an excuse, but people take it seriously here. Yeah, they do. And you know what I take seriously, Jamie? No, just what? just reading this next paragraph. Great. Okay. So okay. the reveal Better. of her private letters led to a precipitous decline in the fortunes of the Theosophical Society. But what okay. finally forced Blavatsky out of India was a controversy over the release of the Mahatma letters. And these are those the series of letters of Kuthumi and Moria that they'd sent to this English author, AP Sinnott, that turned out to be totally plagiarized by another dude, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, what and uh, they yeah. were not not only were there plagiary, but like these are again, these are like mystical, supposed to be mystical revelations of the cosmos by undying gurus. And the, the and parts can, that are. And she control C, control well, V to, that's so embarrassing. Well, and, and the parts that aren't ripped off are just like the specifically like throwing shade at specific people in the real world that Blavatsky disliked. Like it's this like mix of stolen Plagiarism mysticism and, an and airing like, of personal fuck grievances. this guy I have an argument with. Like the spirits say, fuck this guy. <laughs> to be fair, how many best selling books mm-hmm. could you describe as essentially a mix of plagiarism and airing personal grievances? I would okay, argue probably okay. a lot. Well, Jamie. My hot dog uh, book, for what example. If, no, what if I said about coming on here and slandering Michael Crichton? Like, the man's dead. Let's have some respect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Michael. Jurassic did a lot of damage Dominions. on the way out, didn't you? Um, so <laughs> this all blew up enough that a British organization, the Society for Psychical Research, sent, and again, this is not this is not like a crackpot. Nowadays, it, anything with that name would be kind of crackpot. But again, this is like people are trying to see if this is real science. And it is, like, legitimately right. – yeah, you would want to like study this to some extent. Um, it makes so this sense. is like, yeah, th- yeah, you would want to like try to see can we prove whether or not this stuff is real. So they send a fucking dude to India to analyze the letters, and this investigator, Richard Hodson, writes a huge report uh, which concludes that Blavatsky is quote one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting imposters in history. Um, now, mm-hmm. Theosophists, you can read if you want to spend days reading Theosophists tearing this report apart for its supposed 
shortcomings and stuff. There's I a don't. lot. Oh, it's a ton of it, Jamie. Oh, um, I know. That's yeah. why I was like, I'm not covering this. I'm yeah, going to bed. It, yeah, exactly. It is not worth it. No, you don't need to. Nobody needs yeah. to. I, I'm sure there's a theosophist listening who's going to be like, but you're not doing the proper. Like, I don't care. It's, it's fine. If you want to be a theosophist, be a theosophist. It's not, I don't think there's anything particularly toxic about it in 2022, but like, chill out, man. She was a con woman. Right. Chill out, I, I man. Do, that's Robert's I do advice. <laughs> I do all kind. Of, I do kind of like those kind of quotes where it was like, "Yeah, you know, this person was objectively full of shit, but mm-hmm. you kind of got to hand it to her, right?" Like, that's, yeah, I she do was love she was pretty like good that. at being full of shit, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's, that's how I feel about LRH. You know, I. By the way, so oh, LR, oh, Ron Hubbard, L, everyone calls LRH. I was I've like, wow, look suspect- at you on a little cutesy, cutesy nickname uh, basis no, with it, him. It, it's what Scientologists actually do call him. It's like the thing that you, oh, like, so L- sorry, L- they'll talk about like LRH tech and stuff is like a big way they'll refer to like Scientology, like, uh, you know, teachings and shit. Um, but I kind of think that was also Hubbard ripping off Blavatsky because sh- everyone calls her HBP. And in all like theosophist literature and shit, she's always Whoa. called HBP. It's very, I tried to watch, I did watch with a couple of friends at the compound, a documentary about her and they kept calling her HPB and it sounds like HPV when you have like a bunch of people (laughs) saying it quickly. No, that's my department and I don't have it anymore. Okay. Good for for Um, you. Thank you. I didn't know that you could read. Sometimes it just goes away. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, um, good for okay. Yeah, just like HBP eventually went away. Um, I had, I had by a dying. very toxic. I had a very toxic thought when you said that. Do you oh. remember how there used to be those god awful shirts that said the notorious RBG? Oh God, yes. Do you think that Theosophists had shirts like that with around her? They are they, if they that kind we, of Jamie. Cringy? I think what? we figured out how you and I are going to make a million fucking dollars. Oh, we're about yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, the Notorious HBP. <laughs> where she's like got a blunt in her hand because some people think she smoked a lot of weed. Although Lockman says that that's a dirty lie. But Lockman's also let's double down kind of on a convict. That. That's, we got, yeah. we, fucking look, double down got on a, it. Fuck it. We've got yeah. to move product. She smoked yeah. weed. She smoked hella herb. Hella I really, herb. I really don't like that I had that thought, but now mm-hmm. I it's it's gone. I've released it. Thank you. You released it into the universe, back to the Ooh. Akashic Library, feel, where it feels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just yeah, it's a gigantic volume sitting in the Aka- yeah. Akashic Records. Yeah. God, what a um, what a nightmare concept. What a hoot. So the fact that the report like happens, a, a lot of the folks who were like again, the people who make Theosophy profitable, which are people who are kind of into it, but not. Mm like haven't lost their minds. They just, maybe they just want something neat, right? Like it's boring being a British person in India all the time or whatever. Boring being a British person in Britain or whatever. And you you want a little spice. Is such a snooze. (laughs) So maybe a lot of them were just folks who wanted a little bit of spice. And when this letter comes out, like, a lot of like that that kind of support, which is where a lot of the money comes from, starts to evaporate. And in again, the same way she had in New York, whenever people start like getting wise to her, like any good con artist, she moves on. And Blavatsky right. leaves India. She returns to Europe in March of 1885. She left in 1878. So she's in India about seven years, something like that. Um, okay. She lands in Naples. She travels around a bit and she spends most of the next three years living off of a society pension, which I think was quite comfortable, and working on Ooh. her last book, her very last book, The Secret mm-hmm. Doctrine. And that, Jamie Loftus, Sophie mm-hmm. Lichterman brings us all the way back around to our old friend from episode one, Jean Salvain Bailey, the astronomer who crafted the theory of a Hyperborean Atlantis. Now, 
Bailey effectively orientalized Atlantis, right? Um, taking the mythical super civilization of European lore that had been like a focus of occultists and stuff for millennia and shifting it to Asia. Um, when we talked about this earlier, I quoted from Dan Edelstein's Hyperborean Atlantis. Here's him explaining what Blavatsky actually wrote out in her last book. A series of lengthy glosses and commentaries of an alleged ancient book consulted by clairvoyance, no less, the stanzas of uh, Disneyan, um, I don't know, D-Z-Y-A-N. Blavatsky's text mm. is an anti-Darwinian descent of man that tells the rise and fall of seven root races. We are currently on number five, going on six. Each root race is divided into seven sub-races and is associated with a different continent. Although with continental drift and the disappearance of certain continents, these do not correspond with the ones we know. Unsurprisingly, one of these lost continents is Atlantis, although writing shortly after Ignatius Donnelly, whose Atlantis, the antediluvian world, launched the Atlantis craze, Blavatsky did not place Atlantis in between Europe and America, as Donnelly had, but rather in the far north, near the North Pole. Indeed, in Blavatsky, Bailey had finally found a supporter. She quotes his works extensively, no less than 22 times, and credits him with having discovered the truth, or at least part of it about Atlantis. So the entire cosmology of Blavatsky's last book is based in large part on a mix of Bailey's work and that novel, The Coming Race by Edward mm -hmm. Bulwer-Lytton. Now, while wow. he'd envisioned this underground master race as being like potential conquerors, she saw, sees them as benevolent spirit guides. Again, Kut Humi and Master Moria, they're living underground, right? There's this network of tunnels. They're right. the super race underground. And she saw Bulwer-Lytton's concept of Vril as basically being, again, kind of a cult electricity. And as mm -hmm. she always did, Blavatsky just rewrote a couple of other people and like mashed it together with a half understood Eastern religion. And like, that's the associate. To truth. confirm what she's been trying to write down yes. for most of her life. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Now, unfortunately for everybody on earth, one okay. thing that Helena chose to focus on heavily when she was taking shit from Bulwer-Lytton or Lytton, Bulwer-Lytton was the whole race science aspect of his book. Mm. Now, this had always been a part of diffusionist thinking. There's always been some weird, like, uncomfortable race shit with diffusionism. Because if you're claiming mm -hmm. there's a single source of all invention and creativity and people today are degenerate imitations of past splendor, well, some people are going to be more degenerate than others, right? Some people are going to be closer to the master race than others. So there's – obviously, this has always been a problematic yeah, I attitude. I yeah. see where that's headed. Yeah. Yeah. Edelstein continues, quote, Blavatsky also develops to its fullest the racial germ present in Bailey's thesis. Hyperborean Atlantis was home to the Atlanteans, but also saw the emergence of another race, the Aryans. From Blavatsky, the Aryan race was born and developed in the far north, though after the sinking of the continent of Atlantis, its tribes immigrated further south into Asia. For a long time, the remaining Atlanteans and the Aryans lived together. They brought civilization to India, Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and are the ancestors of the current Europeans. The Atlanteans transmitted to the Aryans all the known sciences and even highly sophisticated technologies such as aeronautics, knowledge of flying in air vehicles, as Blavatsky put it. But over time, the Aryan root race also subdivided. One of the more unfortunate results of this division, Blavatsky writes, was the creation of the Semitic subrace, an artificial Aryan race. The Semites were but one of the Aryan subraces, but she draws strong distinctions between them and the others. Quote, with the ancient Aryans, the hidden, me the hidden meaning was grandiose, sublime, and poetical. However much the external appearance of their symbol may now militate against the claim. With the Semite, that stooping man meant the fall of spirit into matter, and the fall and degradation were, degradation were apothesized by him, with the result of dragging deity down to the level of man. So, the Semites destroyed godliness in Europe. That's why Europeans aren't magic anymore, basically, was, was, was the Jews. 
Um, okay. This is this is stuff that like I I have not it, it, I've I've read the the gist of what she's saying, but never like a direct yeah. quote. And it's yeah. And holy shit. Defenders okay. of Blavatsky will say like, well, no, she was anti-racist because she's she claimed like one of the things she's arguing is that Europeans, white people have lost the ability to like do magic and which is a thing that like Indians have never lost. Right. And like people in Tibet, like there's all these the parts of the world and indigenous Americans, people yeah. are still connected to magic and white people are not. And that makes them better than white people in a lot of ways. But also. So I I would say she's not a white supremacist, but it is very racist thinking and especially anti-Semitic thinking. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Like, yeah, the fact that she's not just saying that white people are the master race doesn't mean that it's not very racist thinking. Um, Right. But no, it's extremely. And it's also like. That it's classically racist to attribute magical powers to non-white people. Like that's racist in many. One of the oldest. uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's racist in many. It's very like the the arguments people make to try to sit, make her seem like an anti racist icon are extremely funny. Funny in the right, sense that like, like that's like really one of the man most, really. <laughs> yeah, like, seventh graders know that. Okay. Yeah, you're going to bat for the the Semites destroyed magic lady. Like <laughs> that that's where you're that's where you're taking the swing, huh? Interesting um, take, folks. You know who did destroy magic, Jamie? <laughs> who? The besides my services uh, bo- that support not this podcast. My, bo- besides mm-hmm. my uh, amazing friends drawing of Alfred Molina. Yes, the, the, suckling the, magic has returned to the world. That's the new great Magic's awakening. Back. It's it starts with this. Um, this is my Jesus and the toast. Yeah. So go engage with the returning spiritual occult powers in our new sixth world by purchasing whatever product comes on next. It will give you powers. Or not. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and I hope you all used your BetterHelp or promo codes and now have the ability to summon your own erotic drawings of Alfred Molina suckling different furry creatures at his multi Or you're getting breast. therapy for the effect that it or had on you. Or you're getting therapy for what it did to you, yes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just remember that the Alfred Molina uh, with the suckling kittens mm-hmm. is not real and cannot hurt you. It can't hurt you. It can only bring you spiritual peace. Yeah. So Blavatsky winds up concluding that there is, quote, an immense chasm between Aryan and Semitic religious thought. Uh, they belong to, quote, two opposite poles, sincerity, sincerity and concealment. Who can ever fathom the paradoxical depths of the Semitic mind? Right. This is again, it, she gets whitewashed all up. This is really racist. This is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This yeah. is, this I, is it doesn't quite sound, racist. <laughs> this is funny because it's like even even critical. um interpretations of her work still make it sound like, well, a lot of what she said was taken out of context. And yeah. it, but this yeah. is sounds pretty in the text. Yes. Tell me what context makes who can ever fathom the paradoxical depths of the Semitic mind, not racist. What context the, could make uh, that not racist? <laughs> um, She further degrades Judaism by describing it as a sex-obsessed and selfish cult. Judaism, Mm. built solely on phallic worship, has become one of the latest creeds in Asia and theologically a religion of hate and malice toward everyone and everything outside themselves. Meanwhile, she writes, true Aryans are the most metaphysical and spiritual people on Earth. Okay. Yep. And now, obviously... I, f- I feel like I don't need to belabor how this is adjacent to Nazi thinking, right? Like, that's, I, I mean, that's it's not, like, I, I, yeah. We could talk about it for hours, but 
Again, it's like, I don't think that there's really anything to tease apart here. It's just like overtly racist. Yeah, it is. And obviously, like, you know, she's growing up in Russia during a period in which like a lot, the the state is incredibly anti-Semitic. There are like pogroms when she's a kid that are celebrated and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, She's not, by being anti-Semitic, she's not out of the norm, but the way she's anti-Semitic is completely new. She is inventing new kinds of anti-Semitism. And like um, cooking that anti-Semitism into yeah. like religious texts. Yeah, into religious texts that she's trying to spread as like a pop philosophy. And right. in the sacred doctrine, she places Jewish people as the opponents of the preordained progress of the races. Quote, this Aryan, non-Aryan, and specifically Semitic opposition would become the great historical paradigm of the racist right, replacing the Marxist historiography of uh, historiographic law of class struggle. Blavatsky also raised the specter of a new race to be chosen from among the most select members of the Aryan root race. This next race would have even greater powers than the present one and would truly produce the ubermension of the future. Now, Helena dies in 1891, but her ideas continue to spread. Just as she had first tweaked and updated the work of others, occultists came along to add to her ideas. The first was fascist Austrian occultist Jarg Lanz von Liebenfels, who gave the birthplace of the Aryans as a lost Arctic hyperborea. Hermann Wirth, a German ethnologist, followed. He named the mystical Aryan homeland Tula. Or it's, it's spelled Thule, and it's usually said Thule. I think it's actually supposed to be pronounced Tula. Um, okay. But, like, this is also the name of, like, a popular brand of, like, top racks that people put on their Subarus. Um, it, it, the word had other also, meanings before. Yeah, It's also yeah. the name of my dad's best friend. She's from Greece. It's a Greek name. Is it spelled T-H-U-L-E? No. Yeah, yeah. There's others. There's, like, Thule and stuff. Like, yeah, I think there's there's a number of other kind of similar name. This is T-H-U-L-E. I'll call it Thule just because that's usually, in Hellboy, they say Thule. So that's what we're going to go with here. Okay. Um, Well, that is, yeah, that is my Mike McNola was never wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In July of 1918, as Germany reeled from starvation and disaster on the Western Front, the Thule myth would be adopted by German theosophist Baron Rudolf von Sibotendorf. He founded a Bavarian right-wing nationalist club and called it the Thule Society. This name set it apart from other more militant far-right organizations, and its cover as an antiquarian historical society discussing the myths built by Blavatsky helped Sabatendorf and his followers avoid police scrutiny. Quote, During the rapid succession of socialist and Soviet revolutionary governments in post-World War I Munich, the Thule Society was at the center of the white or reactionary counteroffensive. Its antiquarian cover may have facilitated this role. While authorities cracked down on more visible nationalist groups, the Thule Society's had headquarters at the fancy, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of this hotel, became a haven for the resistance throughout the turbulent period between 1918 and 1920. Yeah, the Holiday Inn. The society of us, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an umbrella group for a bunch of different far-right paramilitary organizations known as the Free Corps. Uh, Free Corps, right? Like these are like using the Thule Society as cover. Now, mm-hmm. one of the far-right groups that came under the sway of the Thule Society was the German Workers' Party, or DAP, soon to become the NSDAP under the leadership of Adolf Hitler. Now, mm-hmm. the precise connections between the DAP and the Thule Society are debated somewhat. This is often vastly over-emphasized kind of as like the Nazis started as this occult organ. And it's like, no, it's just more that a lot of early Nazis had occult leadings, and this was a good cover for being a fascist in a period when that was more dangerous. And so, of course, like they have they're related to one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Sabatendorf would always affirm that the Nazi party was created by Thule Society members. Reginald Phelps has cast doubt on these claims. Um, and it's worth noting, though, that like 
you again, there's a lot of debate about like to what degree was this like an administrative thing? Was it planned? Um, but what's actually true, and Ian Kershaw notes this, is that the Thule Society had a shitload of like members who later became massively influential Nazis. Um, one of these guys was Alfred Rosenberg. Now, Rosenberg would oh, go on to be the Nazi party's, yeah, he's he sucks. Um, not Molina. No, not Alfred Molina. Um, Rosenberg is like the basically kind of like the chief ideologue of the Nazi party next to Hitler. Um, like the guy making up the most kind of Nazi canon next to Hitler. Another Thule Society member was Hans Frank, who became future governor of Poland and would be executed. I believe he's one of the guys executed at Nuremberg. A lot of war crimes, Hans Frank. He's running Poland for the Nazis, right? That's the kind of war crimes Hans Frank winds up committing. Um, another Thule Society member was Anton Drexler. Drexler is the actual founder of the Nazi party. Hitler doesn't found it, right? Hitler's like comes in kind of a little bit later and, and sort of eventually does take over. But Drexler's the guy who founds it and before he founds the Nazi party and while he's starting the Nazi party, he's a regular attendee at the Thule Society meetings. Hitler was never a member and he was definitely not a theosophist. But Rudolf Hess, his one-time best friend and the guy who actually wrote Mein Kampf with him, like when they're in mm -hmm. prison, Hess is the guy who's like taking dictation from Hitler. He later kind of loses his mind and flies a plane to England at the start of the war to try to get the king to ally with Hitler. It doesn't work. Um, he dies in prison. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I could have guessed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he was also a Thule Society member. Um, and Hess is super influential to Hitler. Hess is early on, because mm. once they start to get power, Hess kind of gets marginalized, because he's he's very into the occult. He's a little bit of a crackpot. But he is like, he is like Hitler's emotional support animal. Like when Hitler's mm. like in the early days of the Nazi party, Hitler probably kills himself without Hess there. Um, mm. very important guy. Now, Blavatsky herself obviously was not a Nazi. She could, she dies in 1891, right? She's, the, there's no she way she even could have been. Yeah. But her ideas run through Nazi history. Alfred Rosenberg's book, book, The Myth of the 20th Century, which he publishes in 1930, is the second best-selling book in Nazi Germany under Mein Kampf, right? That's what I mean when I say this guy's like the number two ideologue of the Nazis. And his whole book is a plagiarism of the secret doctrine. Like he's basically taken the secret doctrine and doing what Blavatsky did with the coming race. He opens the book by restating the myth of a Hyperborean Atlantis and ins insisting that the existence of a, quote, prehistoric Nordic cultural center was the basis of all Nazi race science. Edelstein mm. calls mm. this belief in an Aryan Atlantis the, quote, foundational myth of Nazism. Blavatsky's ideas about the inevitable progression of races also played into Nazi theory. This gets forgotten a lot amongst all the horror, but genocide was only like part of the Nazi quest to secure a future for the Aryan race. They were not just trying, obviously one part of this is we want to kill a whole shitload of people to stop them from breeding with Aryans and, you know, watering down their blood. But like, they didn't believe German people were good enough either, right? They didn't believe that there were like Aryans in the way that they're needed to be. Another huge part of Nazism is creating a master race through science and breeding, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is okay. like, it, yeah. again, is tied in with Blavatsky's ideas of like, we're on the fifth race, but we're becoming the sixth race. And like, you know, we can, we are creating this like new race that can be like a new kind of master race, but it's going to take, you know, it's, in her yeah, mind, I mean, it, it was more like a thing of spiritual kind of progression, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter whether... Hitler was a theosophist or not. I feel like there's no, just from the handful of paragraphs you've read, it's extremely obvious why it would be yeah. an influential text for Nazis because it just confirms yeah. stuff that they already believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it also, it more than that, it like and claims sets to do up it with a science. lot of the things they believe, right? Like, because this yeah. had not okay. been, people had been racist and had been anti-Semitic and stuff, but like this specific stuff, the Aryan shit, that was not 
in the fucking, in anybody's radar until Helena Blavatsky. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to quote again. This is about like how she influences their quest to build a master race. Indeed, the horrors of the Holocaust may lead us to overlook the fact that the extermination of the Jews was part of a vaster racial project whose ultimate goal was the creation of a new superior race. The other half of the Nazi racial fantasy expressed itself with particular cruelty in the eugenic experiments performed in SS laboratories, but was also in the high, evident in the highest level of the Nazi party. Certain SS officers apparently mutilated themselves in order to achieve biological transfiguration which is cool oh, that oh thank you for adding that at the end because i was about yeah to it's ask, cool hey, Robert, yeah no it's good cool? yeah it's it's dope um, yeah. yeah i mean the, the you're welcome yeah <laughs> when you when you hear that uh someone has written down we are on the fifth of seven races uh you you, you know that's headed towards eugenics there's just yeah. simply no doubt about it um yep and phrenology and you know god knows what else yep um now well nightmare okay Today, of course, Blavatsky's rants about the progression of races, the conflict between Aryan and Semitic peoples, and Vril are primarily the purview of the weirdest chunks of the right wing. Fascism has, by and large, moved beyond this stuff, right? There are some weird Vril Nazis out there. One of them has a, I think it's on YouTube. I don't know. He has, he dresses like a robot. That's weird. Um, one of, but her influence is still deeply felt in the new age and occult communities. And as a result, aspects of her theology are still making it into new fascist movements today. The Akashic records are supposedly an oh. etheric library that contains records of everything that ever has and ever will happen. Right. Yeah, the this is where Kut Humi, library. Yeah, ever heard of it? It's space Wikipedia that Kut Humi uses to do plagiarism. Now, yeah. the, the, she gets, Blavatsky gets the name, the Akashic records, because because she doesn't speak Sanskrit well. And in Sanskrit, the word akasha means space facilitating sound, kind of, right? There's not a direct translation, but that's basically what it means. Okay. Uh, Blavatsky doesn't speak good Sanskrit and mistakenly believed it meant life principle. So she described the Akashic record as, quote, indestructible tablets of astral life or of astral light, a cosmic like it's wax really stamp, basically. Yeah. Buff. Yeah. Infinity library. It's, it's, Okay, first of all, my mm -hmm. dog just wiped out so hard. Um, Excellent. There was a medium I spoke with in Casadega who brought up the Akashic Records like as a term. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? I've never heard of that. And um, they could not tell me. So it's interesting. Like mm -hmm. It's like still a term that floats around, but it's more used to describe like theory and yeah. philosophy. They're like, well, yeah, all theory. It's just like a theory or a philosophy. It, and I was like, it ties okay, in with diffusionism, big. right? Because for one yeah. thing, what you say with the Akashic Records is there's a single source of truth, right? But the other thing it does, if you're a con person or just like you don't like being questioned too much on your beliefs, you can say that like, well, I know this is true because I channeled this from the Akashic records and it's like written in some space encyclopedia or whatever. Um, right. Right. Which is like, yeah, it's, yeah, definitely a concept that has been increasingly vagified. That's why she invents it. Cause it makes it easier to con people. But over yeah. the, it's been more than a century now, the idea has mutated consistently. This segment from an article by Matthew Rinsky of conspirituality, uh, does a good job of summarizing where we are now. The amount of information now stored in computer memory and crossing the internet highway daily is literally unfathomable, writes Kevin Tudeshi in Edgar Case on the Akashic Records. And yet, this vast complex of computer systems and collective databases cannot begin to come close to the power, the memory, or the omniscient recording capacity of the Akashic Records. Hindu's nationalist spiritual influencer, Saguru, agrees, equating the records to the internet. It's all there, he told a gathering in 2010. Whatever you want, you can access it. It is all there right now. Goop 
Loop's resident Akashic reader is Ashley Wood, who dubs the intuitive process a Google search for the soul and teaches a line activation meditation that promises to illuminate the fiber optic connection between the body and the Pleiades, where she says the Akashic records are stored. From there, the believer can learn to access the records through a simple banal incantation called the Pathway Prayer. No special training required. In anti-vax COVID denialism circles, the Akashic records are now being consulted for advice on how to dispel mental programming and negative agendas promoting the gene therapy of the COVID vaccine. This life coach and medical hypnotherapist suggests in the following sermon that connecting with the profound truths of the Akashic records can provide a soothing long-view perspective on the medical apartheid of public health COVID protections. She says the records had put her in touch with angels, Jesus and Mother Mary, and she can teach you how to connect this way as well. Well, isn't that... So, it, I mean, based on that, it like... The Akashic Records truly is whatever you need it to mean. Yeah, yeah, To yeah. reinforce it's a, your ideology. So it can yeah. be something as simple as like, I'm a girl boss that wants you to pay me $300 to spew some random shit at you to this is why we're anti-vax and Jesus agrees. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's kind of like, for as much of a selfish person as she was, the solid that Blavatsky does for the rest of the occult movement is like, oh, here's this thing everyone can use forever to justify whatever bullshit you're trying to cash in on. Right. It, I mean, because you can be coming from, I mean, it It sounds like you can be coming from literally any vantage mm-hmm. point politically and you leverage this to your advantage. Because, well, then that's like what happens all the time. It's like, oh, I've, I'm channeling this spirit. Like... The the way that my favorite way that this was like leveraged at like the height of like 1800 spiritualism would be like the Fox sisters would channel um, like dead senators who had voted to uphold slavery and would channel them and say, I changed my mind. I was wrong. I shouldn't have oh, said good. that. Well, and that's like, nice. so it can be like this theology can be used in like all these different ways but some of them are like so ah that's disturbing but also it's not surprising it's too vague a concept to to not be used for evil yep and also i you know well robert i'm you know i feel like this is how every well i'm upset i'm (laughs) upset good i'm glad you're upset that's all that's all i ever want is to make you upset that's why we Mm -hmm. do stuff you know yeah we want you upset and to uh you know plug your pluggables right here Mm -hmm. upset and plugging that's the way to live um, well, you can listen to my new limited series, Ghost Church. It's on Cool Zone Media. Ever heard of it? I have. Um, it's the yes. history of American spiritualism. Yeah, I thought you guys, I mean, I think you guys would like some of the content they're putting out. You know, mm-hmm. it's like good shit. Exciting shit. Yeah, you should shit. really try it the out, The advertisers Jamie. are kind of all over the place, but other than yes. that, I think it's like pretty fucking cool. <laughs> and, um, and once again, issues with that, at I write okay on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um <laughs> Hit Sophie Lichterman up at whatever Sophie Lichterman's Twitter is. I don't remember how you write your trust, handle. Trust me, they are. Um. Yeah, I know. <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, uh, listen to Ghost Church. Uh, follow me on Instagram and Twitter if you're so inclined. Yeah. But I'm listen really just kind of talking about minions over there right now. Because yeah. I, I need to find my inner peace. Find you know who's a got minion. a whole fucking room in the Akashic mm-hmm. Records? The minions. And you Word. know what? I'm going to announce mm-hmm. this now, Jamie. We've been planning to wait a little bit. Mm-hmm. If you want to win an original song sung by me and Jamie Loftus about the oh, subject yes. of your choosing, get mm-hmm. a full face tattoo of a menu, a minion on your own face. That's mm-hmm. all it takes. If you do that, we'll Absolutely. write you a song. Absolutely. And look, I'm not going to be picky about the minion that you get full tattooed on your face. No, any say, minion. 
any minion. The one-eyed minion, that complicates things, what with the general mm -hmm. vibe of the face. Mm -hmm. um, I would recommend going with a, a Kevin. I feel like I have the face shape for Kevin, but that's just me. If you need mm -hmm. guidance on like what minion full face tattoo is best for your face shape, I'm happy to consult. Yeah, Jamie will I'm consult. I'm rooting for you. Uh, I will tell you right now that the song we write is just going to be American Pie, but we'll change the lyrics. But look. Yeah, what, and, what do you, and what do you, what do you want? it's not going to age well. No, it's, it will not age well. Really, will it will it will get us canceled in like three months? Yeah, yeah, because you won't quite know what we're talking about, but then three months you're mm -hmm. going to be like, "What the fuck?" Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and so forth. And on that note, mm -hmm. bye. Go with Kutumi. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.